0: Their studio in the Feeding Arizona building in Youngtown, Arizona, it's the Boomer and the Babe Show with Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Join Pete and Deborah and their guests as they give voice to 78 million baby boomers from coast to coast and border to border. Now, here are the Boomer and the Babe, Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. And welcome to the Boom and the Babe Show. It is Tuesday, January twenty second, twenty thirteen, eleven o'clock in the morning here in Arizona, ten o'clock in the morning in California, and it's after the lunch hour on the East Coast. We welcome everybody that's listening, and uh, anybody that may be listening in the future on the archive. Uh, we're waiting for our guest to call in. Our guest today is Dr. Ashkhan Javami a plastic surgeon out of Beverly Hills, and we're hoping he can get back with us uh, or get to us shortly. Uh, in the event that that doesn't happen, we'll just have to reschedule him. I want to remind everybody that this is uh, the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated that puts on this show. Uh, visit us at our website, boomerandthebabe.com. We also do publishing of e-books and mini-books. We hope that when you go to our web, that you would go to our website and sign up for our mailing list so you can get our, our uh online magazine uh, coming in uh, every four to six weeks, which is Boomer Experience Speaks. And I can see that we have our guest on the line, and we'll go right to him right now. Hello. Hello, Hi. Dr. Javami, How are you? This is good. Pete Peters with Boomer the Babe Show. How are you today?
1: Good. I'm good. Thank you. It's Dr. Gavami. How are you?
0: Ah, Very well. Thank you. First of all, doctor, pronounce your first name for me, please. Sure. It's Ashkan. Ashkan, okay, very good. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you got that right, too, because I didn't have any idea. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: uh, I was just uh, doing a short introduction of uh, what we're going to be talking about today, the fact that you're a plastic surgeon, and uh, I think this will be make for an interesting conversation. But we'd like to ask uh, our guests, if you don't mind, to give us a, a quick oh, two-minute or so what would be a uh, a mini-movie of your life, and how did you get involved in plastic surgery, and where did you study, and uh, anything you care to tell us uh, about yourself, your practice, your family, whatever you might like to tell us.
1: Sure, okay. Uh, well, I um, you know, started school, I grew up in Los Angeles. I started all my schooling here, went to undergraduate uh, university in biology at University of California, Irvine, Then after that, went to Freezing, Wisconsin, in uh, Madison, at the medical school there, and got my M.D. And then from that point on, went on to Case Western in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and did some kind of plastic surgery, general surgery training, preliminary training, essentially, and then went on to do formal plastic surgery training at what's considered by many, many plastic surgeons to be the foremost best program in the United States for plastic surgery, which is in Dallas, Texas, And it's the University of Texas Southwestern, and I was very fortunate to go there because my interest was mostly in cosmetic plastic surgery, and most of the education in the United States in residency programs is not directed to cosmetic plastic surgery training. However, a lot of the leaders in rhinoplasty, breast augmentation, liposuction, all aspects, facelifts, um, in uh, plastic surgery are there. They're the educators where a lot of the textbooks in cosmetic plastic surgery are written. A lot of the conferences are headlined over there. And um, the Journal of Plastic Surgery, which is read worldwide, is edited there by the chairman that trained me. So I had a lot of opportunity to write articles and textbook chapters while I was in training and just got immersed into the cosmetic plastic surgery field. Then I went ahead and, despite the recommendations of a lot of my colleagues thinking I was crazy to come into most competitive market in the entire United States, in Beverly Hills, California, started a solo private practice with no partners, no help, no referral lines, no doctor colleagues that I had to rely on, completely on my own island, and worked from the ground up and and built a pretty good, strong practice. Well,
0: it sounds as though not only are you an excellent uh, physician, plastic surgeon, but also uh, a a bit of an entrepreneur as well.
1: You have Uh, to be, yeah.
0: Uh I've talked to many uh physicians uh surgeons uh general practitioners specialists uh over the course of the time that we've been doing the show and I always find uh that I'm interested in knowing what it was that uh directed you in uh in the area that you now practice. Uh I get different answers obviously from from all different types of uh specialists and, uh, and so on, but what was it that sent you in the direction of plastic surgery?
1: Well, initially my first exposure to it in the Persian community, as you may already know, and it's written about all over the internet, nose jobs are kind of a rite of passage. Almost everyone I know who's Persian has had a nose job because the noses are so large and disproportionate. And I don't want to say vanity, but I'd say a beauty and proportion have always been really revered and admired in the Persian culture all throughout history, all the way back to the Persian Empire. So beauty and kind of how things are presented in society are very important to us. And so my mother went and had a rhinoplasty back in the 80s, and I went with her to her consults, and I just remember that, It was such a different experience. Their doctor didn't listen to her lungs with a stethoscope. The office was really fancy. It overlooked all of Los Angeles. And the whole experience and the way everyone was there was so different than the other doctor I knew, which was my pediatrician. And I thought, this is something very interesting. So I talked about it to her, and I started seeing more and more people around me coming with the nose splints on, and I realized this is something very intriguing. So in the back of my head, I always kind of had this real intrigue in the plastic surgery field, particularly with that. Then when I got into medical school, I got very interested in craniofacial surgery and working on the pediatric population in uh, fixing craniofacial deformities and cleft lip palates and things like that. So I kind of went into that a little bit, but the thing with that field is there are so few available spots or areas to be able to practice that in the United States. So I I kind of went towards more of the cosmetic side and decided I'd kind of go into rhinoplasty as my expertise and go back to the original thing because if you want to practice craniofacial surgery in America, you kind of have to just go where the jobs are. And I really wanted to come back to Los Angeles with my family, and I didn't think that that would be possible to target specific geography if I wanted to be a full craniofacial surgeon. So my goal actually in the next several years is to be able to revisit that at some point and just go and do it for free abroad or in areas of need on the side as a project. And that's kind of my next project is to go and get involved in that sense and still have my cosmetic plastic surgery training, but just not let craniofacial be dictating my employment and all that. Instead, I would kind of call the shots and go to different countries that need when I needed to, depending on the foundation and how it's doing.
0: Well, that brings up an interesting point uh, to me, at any rate. It's, uh, maybe it's a little a little off topic, but um, when you see the uh, stories of the craniofacial surgeons that have done miraculous work with very young children that have had cleft <laughs> cleft clef palates and so on and so forth, uh, it seems as though these are all from um, uh, lesser lesser uh, well educated possibly lesser well nourished
1: uh mm-hmm.
0: populations is, is is that uh a byproduct of uh of that uh of their of their surroundings
1: well actually um <clears throat> uh we it's been studied ethnically for example among african american patients it's a very low likelihood so Um, it's a multifactorial process of why somebody gets a cleft lip palate or gets a craniofacial deformity. A lot of it's just genetic, perhaps some mutation going on in the fetus. So it's, it's multiple reasons. But statistically speaking, it's been studied, and in Caucasians it actually has the highest rate of one in every 700. But I think what you're seeing is a lot of the foundations to get money and support, they tend to go abroad because in the United States, there's enough hospitals to take care of the caucasian children in america or whoever whatever ethnicity children in america so where they really need the help and where you're going to see the advertising on tv and in magazines for like things like smile train et cetera, they're going to go outside of the country where there is no care so you might think that it's because it's that's the reason but it's just that that's the commercials you're seeing you're not seeing commercials for hospitals in america necessarily for that reason because Those kids are being taken care of already.
0: Well, is it a matter then of funding?
1: Yes, yeah, it's definitely a funding issue. And many of the places you go abroad, like I have friends in the craniofacial field, they go to like small remote cities in India, or they go to Guatemala, or um, uh, some places in like Thailand, or you know places where there's a need. And Mexico, a lot of people go. So. That's a whole, uh, it's a whole nother topic, and it's, 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 it's one of my areas that I kind of, it's like an old love in plastic surgery, why I got so interested in plastic surgery. And so I'd love to revisit that one day, but right now I'm immersed in the cosmetic plastic surgery field and, and the whole, you know, I have people from all over the country coming for special things that I specialize in. So I really, I'm, I'm very honored and happy with that too. Um, It's just that at some point I'd like to give back in in that way. Now, as far as me and my career, I don't consider myself kind of the cliché typical Beverly Hills plastic surgeon because I'm very, very academically involved. Um, This week alone I'm going to Las Vegas for a conference to teach. After that I'm going to Paris for another conference I was invited to teach, then back to Vegas, then Toronto, Dallas, New York. So I have this whole lecture circuit and I have articles uh, that I'm – publishing and writing textbook chapters that are going to be coming out. So I'm very kind of all over the place and involved with academics as well because I think that's so important as a physician. If you have something to offer to be able to kind of teach other physicians to you know progress and advance the field, whatever aspect of medical care you're in.
0: Well, I, I think I think that's very important. Also, I, I I commend you for that. And I and I was uh, on your website a little bit and seeing some of the things that you uh, have, excuse me have on there. And it's uh, I don't I've i can't honestly say that I've looked at many plastic surgeons' uh, websites before, but yours seems pretty uh, pretty complete. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Yeah,
1: I've been fortunate to also be a lot on a lot of TV shows, which always, of course, helps, especially in cosmetic. Uh, surgery I, the I, surgery.
0: I did. I did watch just this morning. I did watch that um, uh, video of the month. I think on the Ricky Lake show was it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. Uh, let's speak of that uh, that particular procedure that you performed on that young lady, uh, and she was just absolutely enamored with what had been done. Uh, lot, very little bleeding, uh, being able to move around. I mean, I've I've seen women before that have had uh, uh, breast augmentation or breast surgeries, and I mean, it's like they're strapped in with ace
1: bandages. Yeah, it, exactly. It That's exactly really. the anti-Gavami way. Um, well, let me tell you a little about it. Um, that started out by this genius surgeon that I trained with. Like I said, I went to Dallas. I was fortunate to be training under the leaders. Really. And one of the great leaders in breast augmentation who really came up with so many things, both technically as well as types of implants, how we should measure the chest to put implants in, a lot of that came from him, and his name is Dr. Tevitz. I trained under him, and I was just, you know, it's the only way I've learned how to do breast augmentation. So there is no other way for me, really, other than to go in, go under the muscle, preferably going through the breast crease, not the nipple area, and causing the less trauma, least trauma possible to the body as you go in. And because there's no bleeding, because you know where the bleeders are because they've been mapped out, you can kind of preemptively strike and prospectively get hemostasis, which means blood control, before it has a chance to tear or rupture. So you get no staining or bruising of the rib cage one little stain on that rib cage, and that patient has pain for at least a week or two right there. And if you think about it, if you hit your arm or ankle and there's a bruise, it tends to hurt more than if it's just a little swollen. So blood belongs in a blood vessel. The body does not like blood to be outside of the blood vessel, on nerves, on rib cage, on muscle, and that can be painful. So if you can do an essentially no-bleeding technique, the surgical time is reduced to as little as 20, 25 minutes if you know what you're doing as far as making the pocket. And then afterwards, the patient should be able to lift their arms up in the air and have no pain. And a lot of my patients go back to work unless it involves heavy lifting in about 48 hours, and their recovery going back to their normal life in general is 24 hours. And most of them, I encourage them to go out to dinner the night of their surgery in fact, Dr. Tebbets trademarked the term out to dinner breast augmentation when he created this back in the early 2000s. But so many surgeons are reluctant to kind of pursue it and learn it and really stick to it because it, does, it has a high learning curve and it's not that easy to execute it. Unfortunately, though, in our industry, there's a lot of people who are entrepreneurial but in the wrong way, and they, their, their marketing and their, their talk Precedes their abilities, so you'll have people that are fresh out of residency, have basically on five breast augmentations. They get the right website designer and the right people, and they go and talk about how they do, you know, bloodless breast augmentation. I, I see them popping her up everywhere because prior to my arrival in Los Angeles, there was only other only one other surgeon that really did this technique and trained with Tebbets. So now, in fact, this morning I heard of a person on the radio talking about how they do. Breast augmentation where you can go out to dinner the same day, and et cetera. So all these people are kind of on the bandwagon and saying they deliver it and do it, but they really don't, and they don't have the training. And it's unfortunate in my industry that that's how it is, but I'm still going to plug in and do this technique because it's the only way I think breast augmentation should be. And, you know, my patients... Uh, experience it and they're always wowed and their friends come in and they're wowed and everybody is like wow this isn't just on TV it's a reality so it's one of those things where actually the marketing and what you see on TV is actually true the
0: uh, there are so many reasons i would imagine and you've probably seen most of them uh or heard most of them why somebody wants to have a change in their in their physical being uh why why they're willing to undergo uh what whatever uh whatever the the procedure be it uh very traumatic or very comparatively small amount of trauma uh that they they they're willing to undertake that uh uh I I guess I guess you can call it uh that risk because any time you're under anesthesia it's it's a risk I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what is it that that uh, that uh how many people would you let me phrase the question differently. How many people come in as strictly vanity and how many people come in because it's more than vanity to them um they may have a need uh for the for the surgery.
1: That's an excellent, excellent question. Um, I've never actually, heard, I've been asked a lot of questions. I've never been asked in that way. You posed it excellently. The, the thing is, vanity, you know, we think of it as something bad, right? So in, in a lot of the poetry and literature, you think of vanity, and it seems like it's something that's not the best human trait that we have. Uh, so you're right. There are some people that come in. It's an attractive girl her nose and her breasts, everything are fine. She has beautiful breasts. Maybe they're a little bit small, but they're nice. And so you wonder, why would this patient go under anesthesia, have an incision made in her skin, and have an artificial substance put under her, her uh, muscle and make her breasts bigger? So in some of those people, it could be a lot of things. They're very perfectionist types. They're a little bit maybe obsessive on their beauty. They're a little bit too much into the vanity And you can tell it's somebody who comes in, they have a lot of makeup on and, you know, their hair is perfectly done, you know, in the middle of the week on 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, so in in L.A. you see a lot of people like that who are actually trying to get into the movie industry or becoming singers, models, etc. That's a whole other thing. They need that vanity or perceived vanity for their field. You do have a subset of patients, though, that are very unrealistic and do not seem like the kind that would be happy no matter what you did for them and no matter how good they turned out. It's always a challenge for me to be able to see who these people are by meeting them for about 20, 30 minutes. And I do an okay job, but sometimes I I miss it and they fly under the radar, and then afterwards I realize this patient looks great. She's never going to be happy, for example. Luckily, that's not a large percentage of people, at least in my practice. And I really try my best. I listen to my staff when they meet them to not operate on patients like this. So that's those are two subsets of people. Now, as far as non-vanity, I mean, there's people, you know, it's an attractive young, for example, Persian or Hispanic girl, and she comes in, everything is right about her, she feels great about herself, but since she was 13, her nose grew huge, and it's in the way of everything. When she takes a picture, she doesn't even want to smile because it makes it look bigger. And, you know, those are very rewarding, too. I wouldn't necessarily say that person's into vanity, But they have something on their body or face, even more important, the face. You can't even hide it with clothes. This large masculine nose that's in the way of all of their beauty. And to them, if that's made balanced and in a natural way, and that's why people seek me out, particularly from all over the world, is because I do natural work on the nose. I don't try to make it look artificial. And I don't do a cookie-cutter nose where her nose is going to look like any other patient I've ever done. So they come and they get that done and afterwards they're happy and that's not something they think about anymore in their life and they move on and that's not anything any anymore to kind of see every day in the mirror. So that's rewarding and then you have a whole other subset of patients who, for example, who need mommy makeovers, for, um, who have uh, had like three or four children and they're Maybe their relationship with their husband isn't as great anymore. They're not feeling good about themselves because they have loose skin sagging everywhere or they've lost a lot of weight and they have loose skin and and they need skin removal and their muscle tighten, which has been loosened by having multiple children. So they come in, they get a breast lift and a tummy tuck, maybe a little liposuction to kind of get back to a state where they can go vacationing with their husband and be proud to wear a bikini after the kids are grown and they can enjoy their summers uh, away. So you know, it's human nature is very uh interesting. There's so many different personalities, so many different desires. And a lot of men now are doing this too. Uh, just in 3 weeks, I have a scheduled a, uh, a CEO from uh the UK who's coming all the way to Beverly Hills to get his lower face neck tightened because it just sags all over and hangs out of his um his tie and shirt when he buttons up in a suit and you know why not take care of that if he's low risk and he's medically cleared and he has no medical issues and the risk of anything going wrong medically during a surgery is so low that it's you have a higher chance of being hit by lightning why not fix his neck and let him move on with that right. so you know you're asking someone who's biased of course but you know i i don't like to criticize people because all of us if you think about it are vain in some way if that was the case we would never shave our faces we would never get a haircut Women would not do their nails. They wouldn't dye their hair when they start getting gray. We wouldn't wear the suits that flatter us and that are tailored to our, you know, they're all different extensions of us wanting to look good and present ourselves in society. And I don't think anyone is in any place to criticize someone who wants to take it a little bit further and safely in the right hands after the careful research go under anesthesia a little bit and get something fixed a little more permanently than temporarily.
0: Uh, I think you've said that very, very well. My, my, uh, I did. Uh, uh, I think I heard you say something about that. You counsel your patients. You discuss with your patients, and also your staff does as well. And every now and then, one of them will come by, come in under the radar. Uh yeah. So I'm, I'm going to assume there, that there are people that you say to them, "I will not uh, perform this uh, technique with you."
1: Definitely. Um, I just canceled someone yesterday for that reason, because she kept calling and she kept asking questions, and it just seemed to me that someone, somebody who was not stable, and I just did some. It's very obvious the ones patients that are not stable. They're just got out of a divorce and they're not in the right state of mind, or. They have had some traumatic events, and it just shows in the way they talk to you, their mannerisms. And I can kind of pick that up. And If I don't pick it up, sometimes my staff does, and my staff is all women. And, you know, women, are they almost have a sixth sense. Um, and so if I'm concerned and I think, oh, maybe I'm wrong, I will consider referring them to a psychologist and get an evaluation and see if they think, if the psychologists think that they're stable, and that their, their expectations are realistic, and they'd be able to tolerate the recovery period, et cetera. So um, it's difficult, though, because sometimes people do get under the radar. And, you know, you know, I'm sure you know about Yelp. One of my – I have luckily on – I have, I don't look often because I, I don't like to look, but my staff every now and then looks, and I luckily don't have very many what's called negative uh, reviews or anything like that. And if they are, they're usually – Oh, my wait time was too long or which is okay. But one patient who went and wrote a really bad review for me on Yelp was somebody who I actually didn't want to operate on. So here's somebody who I didn't even want to operate on, and she goes and she writes a review on Yelp claiming that, you know, the staff and me and her were rude and we didn't want to operate on her. And that to me told me I made the right best decision in my life right there because <laughs> I didn't even operate on her, and she went and took the time to do that, <laughs> and and then pretended to be another person, talking to herself like you know two people, two friends on the same day, writing a negative review and saying, yeah, my friend went there too, and and they, they real- later realized it was the same IP address or something like that. But you know, thing crazy things like that happen all the time now, and you know she's not somebody who went under the radar. I detected it. And she went ahead and proved herself. Why I made the right decision? Absolutely.
0: Uh, when uh, you, you see these uh, stories, or this—I mean, there's that infamous picture of that that woman that is just—I mean. Oh my gosh! She's got lips that you know are bigger. The one touches her nose, the other one touches her chin. All collagened up, and I mean, it just—it it looks hideous to my, to my eye. And uh, at, at what point do you say to a patient, "We've done enough. Enough is enough already. We're going to stop here. We're not going to go any further."
1: I—I um, I do that when uh, well. It's not something you can objectively say, okay, she's had six procedures, a seventh is wrong. So you can't really look at numbers of procedures or types of procedures. It's more about the feeling you get from the person. And when they come in and they look good, and a lot of people, I don't really have patients like that because I don't create patients like that. So a lot of times it's somebody who looks artificial that's coming to me for something. And the most common that I get is the nose. Um, they see that I'm a nose expert, so they'll come in. They've had their nose done twice. The nose looks pretty good. Maybe one side has a little bit of a little asymmetric area. Their lips are f- are too large for their face. Somebody, somebody injected them too much. Their breasts are oversized. And they come to me because they want a rhinoplasty. And believe me, these patients will pay anything. And, you know, financially, it can be tempting. And I really want to warn any young people out there who are just getting into the industry to not give in just because you have to pay for the bills because it's not the right thing to do. But a lot of times these patients will pay a high price, too. So when I get a patient like that, I just go ahead and I tell them, look, your nose looks good. I personally, it's not my taste, and I don't think it's the right thing to do to operate on you. And so I stop them there. So, so far, I mean, I haven't created somebody like that, but usually it's people that come who've already had a string of procedures and now they want to come in to see you for whatever you're an expert in, you know, so uh, it's easy to say no to them.
0: Do these, do these patients, uh, uh, these individuals, do they typically uh, doctor shop like? Uh,
1: for, yes. For well, they usually go to who's known for that thing, so, you know, there's, maybe 20 people in the United States who are considered to be nose experts and who are lecturing alongside of me at these meetings I told you about I'm about to go to. So when I talk to them at these meetings, they all, we all have the same stories. A lot of them have been in practice a lot longer than me, but we're all kind of in the same little group. I'm actually an executive board member of the Rhinoplasty Society, which only has 70 members worldwide. So something particular like noses, for example, like that, where a lot of people don't do or don't do well, We'll see a lot of these kind of patients coming who've who've had a lot of things done with other people, and now they're coming in for their no's, either for the first time or the fifth time. And it's easy to say no to them, but they tend to doctor shop within the kind of what they consider to be the elite leaders in that industry. They're very savvy, actually. Once we all say no, then if they're desperate, they may go and just go with whoever says yes. But they first usually try to go within the people that are known and what they want, once they hear no from those people, if they're then if their psychosis or their issue is that strong, they'll just go with someone who just graduated a year ago. But usually they're vain enough where they don't want to say that they went to somebody who's not known. They want to kind of name drop or, or kind of you know, it's part of it's also I went to so and so for my nose. It, it's kind of an interesting th- phenomenon. The, uh, uh,
0: the 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 television. Uh is replete with uh stories uh movies whatever that are somehow evolve around plastic surgery <laughs> um is that because uh it's in Hollywood and it is a a like almost a byproduct of that system that they also have it as topics in their uh, theatrical presentations that they put up on television and so on and so forth, or uh, is it just uh, easy pickings for a story?
1: Well, plastered has always been something interesting in the media. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I saw somebody get liposuction on the uh, Oprah show or on Donahue. Back when Donahue was around, I was like, "What is this going on here?" <laughs> you know. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's definitely dramatic. Um, in television, it works very well because it's visually something almost tangible. You know, when you see somebody changed visually, you're watching it, it's dramatic. Plus, medical procedures are a mystery to most people. So that's why a lot of these shows do so well. That's why, you know, you combine medical and drama together and you have the hit show ER, you have Grey's Anatomy. So the medical field in general is is very interesting and intriguing to a lot of people because it seems like something kind of foreign and something... Not a lot of people know much about, so they kind of want to know the inner workings. That's one aspect of it. As far as talk shows and Entertainment Tonight and, and those kind of shows, they're very celebrity-driven shows. And a lot of the people that watch a lot of TV are admire celebrities and stuff. They're not usually the people that are at home, you know, reading, you know, um, classic uh, literature or, you know, doing that kind of intellectual activities. So usually it's a lot of kind of... People that are around the house just watching the tube, and they don't really give much credit to it. They just they're watching it be, for whatever entertainment. So plastic surgery is kind of dramatic and it's visual because it combines the whole medical intrigue thing with visual and vanity and Hollywood and celebrity. It's the perfect mix of everything. It's the perfect storm. Um, a lot of shows present it well, and a lot of shows don't. Uh, I've turned down a lot of shows. I've had people approach me for me to do reality TV where. They want to follow me and my wife and, and kids and see what I do outside, and I say no to those because that's not my purpose of being on television. I try my best, as you can see on those TV shows, to actually educate. Despite the editing, despite how they try to dramatize everything, I do my best to get in the education to the patients that I need to there. So, for example, on the Ricky Lake show, I talked about how you shouldn't have bleeding or trauma when you get a breast augmentation, and you shouldn't go with a huge, big implant that's going to cause long-term trauma to your body. So I got that point across, and for me, that was fine. It was a win. So, you know, everyone's different. Uh, they'll, there's a lot of plasters, I'm sure, a lot of my younger colleagues especially, if they called and said, we'd like to follow you and your girlfriend around and get you on TV, they would jump at that chance. So it's very individually driven, but it will always be something that everyone's interested in because celebrity and, and the, the mass public, when they see royalty or celebrity put in front of them like that, they, they want to know what's special about that, what's going on. You know, I've seen a lot of these celebrities in person, and believe me, without the makeup... <laughs> the hair done and all that—they look just like me and you. There's nothing very different about them. I'm sure you already know that. Yeah. Oh
0: yeah, and they could be walking down the walking down the street. You could they walk right at you and walk past. Exactly. You. Yeah. Wouldn't even know oh, who it
1: was. Exactly. And, and yeah. the, the the one thing that I realized by being in practice for a while here is, you know, I get a lot of celebrity patients, and I get a lot of especially people that are kind of on the rise and and in TV shows and things and they want to go to the next level. I get a lot of them because they actually do their own research and they find who's really good at something they specifically need. A lot of the really A-list and high-end kind of celebrities on that level sometimes don't do their research right. And I think that's why you'll see some of them just be like, whoa, what happened to his face or what happened to her? What did she do to herself? Mm-hmm. Because they're listening to their stylist or their... You know their um, their friend who may not be very intelligent about things, or just you know their agent or somebody just says, oh, I heard so and so is good. You need to go to him, and that's it. So they don't go doctor shop. They don't have time. They don't really have the time to go do independent research and look at the before after photo galleries and look and see, oh, this guy is educated and this and that. So sometimes they'll make a mistake. They'll go to someone and they'll ask for the wrong things, and that combination ends up resulting in a very artificial look, and, it, and those people will forever be remembered as the celebrity who went down and having bad plastic surgery.
0: And You don't want your name attached to that now, do you?
1: No, no. So I definitely, I mean, it, I've had some people come in, and they're, they're very well known, and they want me to do something that I think is not right, so I'll steer them in the right direction. I really try to educate people, even though it takes time, I do talk a little bit fast so I can get in a lot of information in a short amount of time and I try to educate every patient that walks in through there. So even if they don't choose me as their surgeon, they hopefully don't go out there and get, you know, pardon the French, but BS by somebody else who just wants to make a sale.
0: Sure. Uh I've got a, a question that I uh, on my paper here that I was writing down a few things. Uh and I don't know why that this struck me it's 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 a it's a little odd, but where did the name Brazilian butt lift come from oh why 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 couldn't it be a norwegian butt lift or exactly
1: well else? well that's why i i don't call it that actually i i know you
0: i know it, you but, don't i
1: know you yeah, don't yes yeah I like to, for that purpose, I don't call it that. I I always tell my patients, I'm like, why should one country get the credit for something so great? <laughs> um, you know, when we eat a hamburger, we don't say we're having an American hamburger that was maybe originated in Germany. We just have a hamburger. So, the thing is with the Brazilian butt lift, um, it. I don't know who first coined that term. It was definitely something TV related, I'm sure. But uh, obviously Brazil. They have the Brazilian, uh, you know, bikini and, and it shows that shows the derrière very well. And so it makes sense to call it something like. If you're going to attach it to any country, it makes sense to do that. But, you know, they probably have larger and better buttocks in the Dominican Republic and they're not going to call it the Dominican butt lift. But I call it the S-curve butt lift. I think that makes more anatomic sense because when I do it, I envision creating concavity and convexities that meet in an S-shape in the lower back and the buttock curve, in the side hips, kind of getting that Marilyn Monroe, you know, Jane Mansfield, Jane Russell kind of point six five, point seven waist hip ratio going, and that creates that beautiful S curve that to me is much more attractive than a lot of these waif thin thin models. You know, um I always revered more the fifties kind of uh pin up type aesthetic as what a woman should be like. So, for me, the S-curve makes more sense, and that's what I call it. Uh, so, basically, you just lipo the whole body, take the fat, and you um, put it in select areas into the buttock, in the muscle, above the muscle, and under the skin to shape the buttock, and it's really good for people who start out very kind of squarish and don't have a waist-tip ratio of 0.6, 0.7. They have it of, of almost like... so their hip and their waist are in line almost like a kind of like a square or a rectangle and to a lot of those people i mean i believe it or not it may sound funny to you but after i do their procedure and they come in and they're wearing clothes to show it off and they like to come back and kind of show the results to me and kind of get my praise at the same time uh... they're in tears because they say you know for the first time in five or six years their husband is looking at them in a certain way and is, is actually jealous a little bit again and, like, is into them, et cetera, et cetera. So everybody has different motivations for this. Some of them are just young patients that just want a lot of attention, and buttocks are in right now. Buttocks, I always tell people when I interview that it's the new breast. I mean, it is the hottest trending topic in surgery right now is fat transfer in general and fat transfer the buttock. In addition, fat transfer the breast is, is very popular. One of the meetings I'm going to in Vegas in about uh, a month, is the International Fat Grafting Forum, and it only talks about how we transfer fat and how we can do procedures. And I go in and, as the buttock expert. And a lot of people go in and talk about face and breasts and things like that. So, you know, it's really a term that came about, I think, probably media-driven. But the procedure itself, when it's done correctly, and I call it the S-curve butt lift, it's really, really can change an entire body silhouette, and it's very rewarding to a lot of these women. Uh,
0: I I was uh, struck by the fact that you said that there is a ratio. Uh, yeah.
1: Uh, and the and what was the ratio of what to what? The waist. If you do a cur- if you go to the circumference of the waist, you measure that, and you do the circumference of the most wide area of your hips. In general, about a point seven is desirable. That's what Marilyn Monroe was
0: uh explain that again. I I don't I'm not sure that I exactly follow what you said. Well, I mean I, your... I know I know where the measurements are, but what yeah. I'm, what I'm saying is 0.7. Uh... If you
1: divide the um the waist measurement which should be less by the width of the hip measurement circumference-wise. Oh, okay. It equals 0.7. Okay, so the waist should be 0.7 uh
0: versus the other. Yeah. Or basically 70% is that uh Way of saying
1: it. Yeah, that's a good way of saying it. Yeah. Okay. Seventy percent of the circumference of your hip width should be your waistline.
0: Okay. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: Right. I mean, I've had some people that are the other way. They're like one point two because they're shaped like a carrot, kind of. Mm-hmm. So their waist bulges out because they have a gut and they have a lot of flank fat, and then their butt- buttock bone and their buttocks are actually their waist. Their uh, hip buttock width is really low, so they're kind of shaped like a V. Mm.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a thing that I saw, oh, here again, I'm sure it was on television somewhere, I saw it in passing. Uh, there was a picture of a woman that was, and I don't know who she was, I have no idea. Uh, but they were saying that, is this the example of the perfect face? And they were mm. saying that the nose was in perfect proportion to the eyes that were yeah. spread a certain amount and so on and so forth. Uh Is there such a thing, in your estimation, as a perfect face?
1: No. I don't believe in that. I don't believe there's such a thing as perfection, because human beings are not perfect, and the way we think about the world is far from perfect. So it's a very subjective thing, beauty. You know, there's people that actually, I'll point out, I'll be having lunch with my wife, and I point out somebody, and I say, I think her so-and-so is really nice, and she'll be like, what, what are you talking about? And I'm a plastic surgeon, I'm supposed to be the expert. (laughs) So there's a lot of different opinions on beauty. However, there is a little bit of science to all that because they've done a lot of research on even infants and small children and even newborns, and they've done studies on symmetry and facial proportions and attractiveness. And it's, for whatever reason, it is a little bit genetically programmed in us to recognize symmetry, Um, and proportion and beauty. Now, they've done studies, actually, though, where they've made faces perfectly symmetric, and they look really weird and odd. For whatever reason, when we look at something, it's not supposed to be perfectly symmetric because it will look really weird. So if you take one side of the face, mirror image that one side perfectly symmetric and make it into the other side, and so you have one full face with two symmetric sides, it looks really, really odd. So the face, the nose, the nostrils, breasts, everything, in my opinion, should be a little bit off. So, And it's also impossible to have perfect symmetry. I've never seen it. And you don't want to create that as a goal like we just talked about. So to say that it's the perfect face, they may have put features together. I bet you that face is not symmetric if you divide it in two. So if it wasn't a symmetric face and it has all the facial proportions to be correct, then... Maybe they have something there, but to say perfect and to have that as a goal, that's not how I do things, at least. you sure. know, I think of it as a little bit more artistic in that you, 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 you want to kind of create something unique for that person. So I really try to talk patients when they come in. I try to educate them on the nose is the best example, and that's one of the areas I'm known for. I tell them, I'm not going to give you a perfect nose. The nostrils will not be symmetric. There's no such thing in life, in human nature, anywhere. And so the goal is to give you a unique nose that has the features you don't like out of it so that it's not in the way of your other features because it's the center of the face and it brings the whole face into proportion and together and uh that's that's kind of how I approach it.
0: What is the what is the length of time uh that is uh, the recovery for the typical uh rhinoplasty?
1: Uh rhinoplasty is about 7 to 10 days. Mm-hmm. and so I get a lot of school-age children. You know, they come in with their parents or their mom usually, and they do it usually during their spring break, summer, or, Christmas, or uh, holiday. And uh, it's uh, it's not as bad as people think. You know, there's ways to do it where you can kind of minimize bruising and things, and and you really have to do a thorough job, and you have to understand the internal anatomy. So when I do it, A lot of patients are rewarded with improved breathing, too, because a lot of people have issues inside, breathe through their mouth when they sleep, they snore. So you kill two birds with one stone for sure. You have to because if you're making the nose smaller from the outside, you'll make it more cramped inside if you don't preventatively open up the space inside for air to pass through. So a lot of people are willing to go through a 7- to 10-day period if they're going to have, A, a better-looking nose that they don't have to worry about anymore, and B, breathe potentially better.
0: So there's more than just the um, the appearance that is a benefit.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I've done, I do, uh, you know, cases for uh, under insurance that are just for breathing only, and then they just pay a little bit out of pocket to maybe get the hump removed, for example. Mm-hmm. There's there's some of that too. Yeah, I mean, the nose is such an important organ of the body for breathing, taste, smell. I mean, it's it's really critical. That's why most people are savvy enough these days to know that they just can't go to anyone to get it done because chances are if you don't go to someone who's a rhinoplasty expert, you're going to have either your breathing affected or the nose aesthetically they'll either do too little or too much. So they might be timid and scared and not want to do too much, and then you end up paying a bunch of money and not having much of a change, if any change, perhaps even a worse change or they do too much where they just take too much off or they put things in the wrong place and they rearrange things where it looks odd or artificial and then now you need a revision. And so, you know, 30-40% of my practice is actually revision rhinoplasty, which means correcting previous rhinoplasties that have gone wrong. Well, that was my
0: next question, how much how many times do you see the results of some uh bad procedures that you uh that you end up correcting and you just A lot.
1: To... A lot because Uh, Unfortunately, you know, in the United States right now, an anesthesiologist could do your facelift. You know, there's no um, rules or regulations, and it's something I'm just shocked that the you know the government doesn't kind of go in control in a sense because you know we have all these you know uh, there's OB gyns in town that are doing you know nose jobs and facelifts and liposuction and stuff, and they might be great surgeons at removing the uterus or delivering a baby but to go and mess with the anatomy of the neck and face you know usually those patients end up getting less than stellar results or a botched procedure because there's no way that that surgeon has the confidence to go deep enough near the nerves to do the right facelift the last years. they may just go and pull a little skin near the ear or something and you know and usually they charge a lot less so they get the patients that want a bargain shop and uh So we see a lot of those when you're a a surgeon who's certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery, and especially if you're kind of one of the educators that's traveling and doing the lecture circuit, that kind of gets around, so you kind of become the go-to. And I actually get a fair amount of referrals from other plastic surgeons who don't do certain things and and who are wise enough to say, this is a little bit beyond my expertise. I'm going to refer this to somebody who kind of sees this daily. So I get nose job, for example, referrals, or I've seen a lot of botched buttock surgery, um, butt implants. I've had to remove, you know. Um, so when you're a, you're kind of a, a board certified plastic surgeon who, who who does this stuff, word gets out, and you do end up getting a fair amount of revisions in your practice.
0: Well, I I can't think of anything that, well. Uh... I, I had occasion to be in the hospital as an outpatient and ended up back in the hospital with a post-operative infection. But, oh, wow. uh But, but the, that the, I, I can't think of anything worse than going in the, into surgery, having the surgery done, and then the guy coming out and saying, uh, oh, my gosh, he botched it or she botched it, and now i got to go back in and do that again. Yeah,
1: especially if you paid for it out of your pocket um it you know there's no guarantees obviously you could go to the the number one world expert in this and that and still not be happy with your results but it's just less of a gamble obviously you know if you're it's life is a gamble every day we walk out and we drive our car we're taking a slight gamble if you're going to take a little bit of a gamble here and go under the knife with somebody then obviously it behooves you to do your research and you know, I have a lot of patients that come see me, they're like, I've been watching your website for two years now, or I've been to six other surgeons, et cetera, and now I came to you and I think you're the one. You know, so that, those things are, I'm honored by that, and that's how everybody should approach anything they get done, but unfortunately we don't have the time to go do that. We usually just go by the recommendation of a friend, this and that, and, you know, we just do it. But I think people are becoming more and more savvy now, especially with the Internet, but, on the flip side, the real problem with this now is ethically, there's a lot of surgeons that have websites that look fancy and they have all these statements they claim on their website that they that doesn't hold any ground. You know somebody could be one or two years out of residency fresh call themselves a world renowned uh plastic surgeon with numerous published articles and and say all this and then you go look at their c v they graduated a year or two ago. They've barely done any cosmetic surgery training, and the two published articles in their CV uh, was on some some uh, mice study back in med school, you know. <laughs> and so it, it's just this embellishment, this internet thing.
0: I straightened the na- the tail of a mouse. Uh, <laughs> my gosh, uh, it. I, I am I'm still thinking about your statement where you said that. Anybody that an anesthesiologist could perform plastic surgery.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, uh, that not too long ago. To um, well, I'll give you an example. Not too long ago in Beverly Hills, right on Rodeo Drive, a radiologist who was advertising himself as being one of the best liposuction surgeons in the world was um, the. I think the the. I don't know if it was the SWAT team or somebody. They raided his office, and I think he fled to Brazil he was selling the fat he was liposuctioning as biodiesel to somebody or biofuel and not in the proper channels like black market and he was letting his you know receptionist kind of finish up the liposuction at the end and you know to me for the most advanced country in the world america to allow on rodeo drive in beverly hills a radiologist a radiologist to be performing liposuction It just, I just don't even know what to say to that. I mean, but unfortunately, that's the way it is. So, you know, research is careful. The basic, basic thing that needs to be done is the absolute basics. It's like a car having wheels and an engine that can start. The basics is that your surgeon needs to be certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. It's the only board that recognizes accredited training in the United States in plastic surgery. That's the basics. Then beyond that, then you can go and shop for a Lamborghini, Ferrari, or Mercedes. And that is, you know, now the car is starting, the wheels are there, the engine works. Now you have to go beyond that and find one that matches your taste. You click with, your gut instinct tells me, this is someone who's going to be there for me if something goes wrong, and someone who has the scientific and artistic sense to perform a good procedure.
0: Right, right. and Because, because it is, at some level, Uh, an artistic procedure, isn't
1: it? Very, very. Uh, It's something you can't teach. I train the residents at UCLA um, and I have surgeons that come watch me from other parts of the world and the country and I can tell by talking to them and some of them if I get to see them work in action I could tell, you know, this may become a surgeon who's going to be board survived by the American Board of Plast Surgery but they may not be someone who's ever going to be good at a nose job, for example, or Somebody that I don't think has the artistic sense to perform liposuction in a way where it'll flatter the female figure.
0: Well, it, um, it it's certainly an an interesting uh, an interesting specialty because there are so many uh, there are so many intangibles involved. Uh, when it comes to making the choice, when it comes to the type of procedures that these the, that the various surgeons use, and so on and so forth, and uh, it's uh, it has to be an informed. I mean, anytime you go under the knife, it has to be an in, an informed decision. There's Definitely, no doubt about it. And
1: uh, and, and I it, give all. I try to you know tell patients, and we obviously paperwork has it legally. All the paperwork says it, but not a lot of people read it. So the key things that pertain to them, I make sure that I tell them verbally. And so they know, you know, there's a chance. You have a tummy tuck, there's a chance that scar may not be as great as you want. It might need a revision. Or, you know, there's a chance that your nostril on your left may not match your right perfectly, as it doesn't now.
0: Uh, There there are certain results. uh, And uh, can, can you tell, for instance, if a person is going to have, uh, almost that that rope looking scar. Uh, is, is there are there certain skins and so on that
1: uh, that are more susceptible to that? There are um, some ethnicities that are a little bit more prone to that, but more important than the ethnicity is that scar tends to happen in patients that are a genetically prone. So maybe somebody like who's you know Filipino or or from Thailand or some of the central parts of Mexico, for example. Uh, They may heal like that in general. Um, And different skin in the body heals differently. So it depends on the location. For example, even in my hands, I'll do a tummy tuck, and the right genetic, you know, everything's perfect, but the one area where the hair um, follicles are near the pubic region and where all of the sweat glands and oil glands are centralized just causes an inflammatory cascade, and that area tends to be a little thicker than the rest of the scar. So it It really varies, but I really try to educate my patients on it and It's hard to predict, oh in this person that's it's going to happen, but if somebody is uh, one of the genetic uh, one of the ethnicities where I think might have a slightly higher chance, I just forewarn them, and actually, all my patients we have a whole scar gel treatment program that we put everybody on where they get scar treatments that have silicone base in them, which has scientifically been shown to reduce the chance of that happening. And then, if it does happen, you can either do steroid injections or revise it. so a lot of these patients, especially the ones that need big scars for body procedures like tummy tucks, body lifts, arm lifts, they're willing to trade off trade off you know a thousand stretch mark lines and loose skin for one line that may potentially not heal as great so it's a trade off that most people are willing to accept but and things can be done about it if it happens um, The other thing that can tend to make that happen more commonly is if the tension line on the incision is great, so if it's a really, really tight closure, that it's just so tight that it's over tight, that tension is one of the main factors of why that rope hypertrophic scar thing can happen. Because the
0: skin is
1: it's under tension, so it constantly wants to pull apart. So ah,
0: okay.
1: the cells are working overtime, and it tends to stimulate that thickening to happen. So one way to avoid it is to not have so much tension on your closure line. So, for example, when I do a facelift or a neck lift, my whole tension and my work on the body or the face in that instance is all deep. I'm working with the muscles, the ligaments, the fatty blanket layer that's strong, doing all my tension work there to shape the face. Then the skin lays just back down over it without tension, and it just kind of you just remove a little bit of skin, not a lot. In the old days and even now a lot of people they're just doing nothing but pulling skin and skin is not something that's really strong if it was strong you wouldn't be aging like that in the first place it would be holding everything up so there's certain areas where you have to judge the tension based on your experience and you don't make it so tight and or you don't even need it to be tight
0: Excellent. Uh, just, just excellent information. Uh, I, I'm, I'm enamored with this whole conversation, doctor, and I'm sure I can <laughs> okay, and probably go on for another half hour, but we just don't have it. Uh, cause of course, to- no.
1: I appreciate the time. I hope that enough people were listening where I was able to educate, you know, enough people.
0: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you uh, uh, try to get in contact with you here after the show because there's a couple of things I wanted to touch base with you about how you can use this use this program uh, yourself maybe on your website or whatever. So, oh, okay. Uh, I'll I'll get back in touch with you on that one. And uh, I want to thank you for being a guest today. It's been a, just a tremendous conversation. I th- certainly do appreciate it. And how can people get hold of you if they want to uh, discuss procedures or whatever the case might be?
1: Well, for um, for rhinoplasty or no, um, they can just go to rhinoplastycenter.com, rhinoplastycenter.com, r-h-i-n-o-p-l-a-s-t-y-center.com, and then my name, my last name is kind of hard to uh, uh, type out, but my website is gavamiplasticsurgery.com, and so it's g-h-a-v-a-m-i-plasticsurgery.com. If they just say gavami and plastic surgery in Google, it'll take them to me, and they'll find me eventually. Um, and then the phone number is obviously uh, it's
0: 310-275-1959. And that's a 310 area code, right? Yes. Okay, uh, 275-1959. Exactly. Okay, very good. Well, doctor, thank you very much for a very interesting hour. I do appreciate it, and uh, continued success in your practices, and uh, travel safe.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Have a good day. Okay, take okay. care. Bye now.
0: We've been having an excellent conversation with Dr. Ashkan Gavami, plastic surgeon, Beverly Hills plastic surgeon that really seems to know his stuff, and he always seems to have, apparently, the best interests of his patients at heart, uh, which is nice. He's not in it just for the money, uh, because Lord knows there's enough of that to go around in what he does, so just doing a great job is uh, going to get him probably all the money he needs. That having been said, we certainly do appreciate the fact that you uh, were listening today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I know I had a great time talking with him. With that, we'll say goodbye. Have a great day. Tomorrow, don't forget, we're going to be on for an extended period of time from the infamous 16th hole at the TPC Scottsdale, where there's some special festivities with with us and golf mix going on. Uh, We're going to be uh, describing the action as players come through the 16th hole uh, out from the tunnel underneath the stands And they're going to try to beat Aaron Oberholzer and see if they can get their shots closer to the hole uh, than the golf pro Aaron Oberholzer does. So that should be an interesting and fun day for all of us. Hope you can join us then. Thanks again for listening today, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Take care, everybody. The babe show where we bring interesting conversations to the world. Be sure to follow us on Twitter where we tweet as Boomer and Babe and on Facebook as Pete Peters47. As always, you can friend us on Blog Talk Radio or sign up for our newsletter at BoomerandTheBabe.com. Email us at host at boomerthebabe.com with any of your comments. Remember, at 50, you're just
1: getting started.